acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to This Day in History Class, a show that flips through the pages of history to deliver old news in a new way. I'm Gabe Luzier, and in this episode, we're looking at a Georgia campaign that allowed the personal distastes of a few loud objectors to control the reading habits of everyone else. The day was February 19, 1953. The state of Georgia created the first literature censorship board in the United States. It was known as the Georgia Literature Commission, but its purpose was much narrower than its name would suggest. Made up of just three appointees, the commission's only job was to review potentially offensive publications to determine if they were in line with the state's obscenity laws. The board didn't have any direct power of censorship, but it still had a strong say in whether or not certain titles could be circulated in Georgia. The commission could advise publishers and distributors not to sell certain titles in Georgia, and it could recommend to states' attorneys that those parties be prosecuted if they did. The Georgia State Assembly had felt compelled to create the commission due to two primary factors. The first was the growing popularity of mass-market adult magazines and X-rated comics, and the second was the so-called paperback revolution of the 1950s, a period after World War II when publishers began releasing well-printed, low-cost books on a wide range of subjects, including the salacious ones. The trend unleashed a torrent of boundary-pushing dime-store novels, complete with provocative titles and raunchy cover illustrations. With these issues front of mind, the General Assembly voted unanimously to establish what was essentially the nation's first censorship board. Governor Herman Talmadge personally selected the committee members, appointing Baptist preacher James Westbury, 
newspaper publisher Hubert Dyer, and theater owner William Boswell to serve four-year terms. The three members met once a month to review material that they thought might be, quote, detrimental to the morals of the citizens of Georgia. Initially, the commission didn't have a set criteria for what constituted obscenity in literature. The committee chairman, Reverend Westbury, took an especially hard-line stance, telling the press, quote, I don't discriminate between nude women, whether they are art or not. It's all lustful to me. But eventually, the committee decided to take a more measured approach and developed an eight-question checklist to determine if a book was too smutty for the Georgia public. The most pertinent question was number seven. Is there evidence of pornographic intent? If a title ticked that box, its publisher was pretty much guaranteed to get a letter from the commission. And with Reverend Westbury at the helm, you better believe they sent a lot of letters. The first four books to be unofficially banned by the committee were never publicly disclosed because the distributors agreed to voluntarily withdraw them. But if you're curious, the titles were believed to be Spring Fire, Women's Barracks, Element of Shame, and Place Called Esterville. That last title was written by an author named Erskine Caldwell. And in 1957, another of his novels, God's Little Acre, became the first book for which the commission recommended prosecution. Apparently, Caldwell's distributor had ignored the board's request to withdraw the book from sale within 30 days. And in this case, that strategy proved successful, as the state judicial system never acted on the recommendation to prosecute. To keep the commission from looking completely ineffective, the state legislature gave it a bit more independence the following year. The committee was granted the power to subpoena publishers and distributors and to issue court injunctions to stop the sale of lewd material. It put those new powers to work later that year, halting the distribution of two books published by the Plaza News Company, Turbulent Daughters by Reese Hayes and Rambling Maids by Betty Short. The lost revenue and associated court costs of these injunctions had a chilling effect on the book industry in Georgia. By 1960, distributors had agreed to withdraw more than 120 titles from sale just to avoid being hauled into court. The Georgia Literature Commission survived many legal and legislative challenges over the years, but by the mid-1960s, some lawmakers began to worry that it was encroaching on people's First Amendment rights. These concerns about the commission's constitutionality were thrown into sharp relief in the fall of 1966. After flagging Alan Marshall's book Sin Whisper as obscene literature, the commission sought and received a declaratory judgment on the book from the Muskegee County Superior Court. The judge agreed that the novel, which was part of Greenleaf Classics' Evening Reader imprint, violated state law, and when the distributor appealed the ruling to the Georgia Supreme Court, its justices sided with the commission as well, calling the book, quote, filthy and disgusting. However, the U.S. Supreme Court disagreed. It struck down the state court ruling and overturned the ban on Sin Whisper. And while the decision was issued without any explanation of the court's reasoning, it seemed to suggest that either the book wasn't obscene or that banning it wasn't constitutional. Either scenario casts serious doubts on the commission's judgment, 
and from then on, it became increasingly ineffective. The beginning of the end came in 1971, when then-Governor Jimmy Carter slashed the commission's annual appropriation by about 20%. Not long after, his administration implemented a zero-based budgeting system, which required each state agency to justify its existence every fiscal year. That was no easy task for the Georgia Literature Commission, an unproductive government body which Governor Carter dismissed as a, quote, mere complaint department. So when two of its members died in early 1973, Carter didn't bother to appoint replacements. The commission couldn't conduct business with just one member, and when Reverend Westbury's term expired in spring of that year, the agency was effectively finished. Highly controversial and deeply unpopular from its inception, America's first censorship board managed to survive nonetheless for a full 20 years. That kind of longevity is discouraging for fans of free speech and free press, especially now when book banning is once again making headlines. But maybe the takeaway shouldn't be that the commission took a long time to die, but that its death now seems inevitable. So while the book banning campaigns of today may seem a little different and a lot more prevalent, remember that on a long enough timeline and with enough sustained backlash, their stories will end the same way. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any feedback you'd like to share, feel free to pass it along by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.